Welcome everyone to Vacuous Vocation. I have with me today a guest, Alex Voss. Um, Alex and I are students here at the Ron Paul Scholar Seminar, um, Ron Paul Institute uh, Scholar Seminar, and you and I are two of 10 students who applied for this program and got accepted. So that's how we're meeting. And we just finished today with the uh, Scholar Seminar, listening to a day of talks and then tomorrow I believe you'll be there too but the um, the war on us Ron Paul conference and that will be excellent as well but Alex I wanted to initially um, invite you here and uh, talk about Austrian economics uh, kind of like who you are where you're from what got you into Austrian economics Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast uh, and, and happy to meet you. Uh, happy to be here at the Ron Paul uh, Symposium, as you mentioned. Um, my background as it relates to Austrian economics uh, actually started when I was in high school. Um, I had a basketball coach. Um, I played for a pretty good high school team uh, and was fortunate enough to play in college uh, where I went to University of Chicago. When I um, had announced that I was going to University of Chicago, I had a, an assistant coach, um, you know, spend, start spending every day with me uh, from then on out, uh, basically telling me that uh, the Chicago school is, uh, you know, a decent school of economics, but not really the right uh, free market crowd to, to fall in line with. Um, he at the time actually blogged as well um, under it, the title Austrian Economics Addict, and he would send me his posts once a week or so, um, largely uh, from a Hayekian perspective. So I, I really took that background and um, you know followed his work, which led me essentially immediately to the Mises Institute, uh, and probably from the time I was uh, you know a senior in high school, um, really have been reading. Uh, about every article that the Mises Institute has published, um, you know, since that time. So, so uh, you know, maybe 12 years straight at this point, um, which has really um, only grown my, my uh, interest in Austrian economics. And actually, it's now culminated in um, attending the Mises Institute's um, master's degree program uh, through the Institute as well. So I've just started that uh, in July. Uh, in August, um, so just last month, three weeks in uh, right now, getting started. Dude, well, that's awesome, but congratulations on getting into that program. That's very prestigious. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I can't, uh, I don't know for certain how difficult it is or is not, but I can tell you with the uh, other classmates that I have in, in this cohort that I interact with uh, are quite a, a, an interesting, diverse, and um, you know, very strong economic backgrounds from all of them. So it's an, it's an impressive group. Wow. And so you attended the University of Chicago? I did. Yeah. I attended from 2012 to 2016, uh, played basketball there and studied economics, finance, political science, all that. That's really cool. Um, are you familiar with Curtis Yarvin? Uh, I, I am, but only through other people. I don't read him myself, but I've heard him on podcasts and I kind of know his general views. There's one fact or not a fact, but a point he makes in his blog, Unqualified Reservations, where he says there's roughly about 20 Keynesian economists for every Chicago school economist. And there's about 10 Chicago school economists for every one Austrian economist. 
I don't think I've ever heard that point, but it doesn't surprise me. I think that might even be giving the benefit of the doubt to uh, to the Austrians in the Chicago school. I I don't. I, even the Chicago boys today are pretty much Keynesian. Uh, it's not the Milton Friedman days of University of Chicago of fifty years ago. It's hmm. it's changed. Well, thank that's well that's 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 interesting. That's really cool. Um, so. Uh, reading all of those articles on the Mises Institute, do you find yourself being more an, an anarchist or where do you think along those lines? <laughs> yeah, um, I would just say unequivocally, I, I'm an anarchist. Yes, um, I don't it, fr- more from a moral point of view than anything else. I um, especially since we heard today from Jacob Hornberger, uh, I know he is very adamant that he doesn't think anarchy is the right solution. Um, I don't know if it is or is not, but um, I think if you're going to follow the um, the Austrian economic analysis and the, and the libertarian analysis, then the um, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, I don't think there's room for the state. I don't think there's room for any intervention from um, any type of monopoly on violence. You know that said, I, I I don't make it a point to quibble over. I, I I would have absolutely no reason to fight with Jacob Hornberger over that view. We can both share our view because it's radically different than uh, pretty much anything else you hear. So I don't I don't find that a useful thing to fight over. Definitely, um, myself I identify as an anarchist as well, um, large in part due to the Mises Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also want to discuss what you're currently working on. And you mentioned this in your introduction at the Ron Paul uh, Institute Scholar Seminar. But um, why don't you explain exactly what it is you're currently working on? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm currently, um, I've been doing it for, for about a year, um, but in a very serious capacity just since uh, July working with a group called Tipolis Corporation, uh, T-I-P-O-L-I-S. And what Tipolis is, is it's the you know, for pro- uh, for-profit project arm of the Free Private Cities Foundation, which was founded by Titus Gebel and named after his book, Free Private Cities. Um, the idea of the foundation is really to promote the idea of you know building private cities, how we can make um, governance or, or um, you know, the market for living together into a market instead of, um, you know, each individual geography has their monopoly uh, use on force. Um, Tipolis, on the other hand, is um, we work with the foundation. It's all headed by basically the same people, but we're really the project arm. So instead of uh, idea promotion, we're actually trying to go out into the world and build private cities. Um, it's a, it's a difficult task, uh, no doubt. Um, but typically the, the idea is that we will go and negotiate with governments, um, typically ones that have more difficult, uh, balance sheets to handle, um, the governments that are known for corruption and haven't, um, you know, created prosperity, um, over time, you know, so the United States is not who we're going to, they're not going to grant us the autonomy we want. We're going to, um, lots of places in, in South and Latin America, we're going to Africa, we're, we're going to, um, you know, Eastern Europe, places like that. 
and trying to negotiate with the government to essentially pass laws that will allow for what we call prosperity zones, uh, which are which are similar to special economic zones, but enhanced. Um, so special economic zones are all over the world. There's thousands of them, and maybe hundreds. I, I'm not entirely sure, but but plenty. Um, and what we're trying to do is take that to the next step. Um, really allow almost entirely internally to that city or to that prosperity zone to have the, the the affairs of that zone be regulated internally. And those regulations would be done by a for-profit general service provider who essentially becomes the government. And the point of this general service provider is to make a profit. So they want to attract citizens. They want to provide good services for a cheap price um, and then grow over time through attracting citizens and letting them basically have the freedom to um, do what they want. We think that this is likely to succeed because um, instead of having this um, the so-called you know social contract, what the case w- would be with a private city is there would be an explicit contract. Um, the idea is we would build the city in vacant land, and if you want to move there, then you and the general service provider of this area would actually sign a contract that says you'll pay each year you know, $1,000, something like that. And in return, the general service provider will provide you with for basic infrastructure, protection, that type of thing. That's it. All else, you know, you figure out on your own. There will be you know, a free market within the zone, so you know, healthcare services would be provided for supermarkets, things like that. Um, but it's not our responsibility as the, as the government service provider. It's your, you know, your job as citizen and entrepreneur to, uh, you know, both, um, you know, live there and not violate anyone else's person or property, uh, and then provide something of service, uh, you know, to other people, um, so that you can earn a living. And it doesn't have to be in the city. Of course, it could be, you know, any job you want to work, um, anywhere even remotely sure absolutely that is fascinating um so there okay so there's many questions and and ideas i have off of that um there's an author i interviewed on my podcast his name is peter boss he wrote a book called the road to freedom and he talks about the subtitle is in the demise of nation states but he talks about this development of free trade cities and one idea was that if a government goes bankrupt they will have to sell off parcels of their land and um, like you said a state could be like a corporation over a geography where do you find uh well I, you mentioned where you find these lands but um is this kind of like what you're looking at more governments that need to generate more revenue by selling off part of the monopoly of land ownership that they have um to to you um, in your company? Um, I think that that might become increasingly uh, what happens. Um, right now, what it is is more countries that are desperate, but not that desperate. Co- uh, countries that want to attract foreign direct investment. They um, So I, you, you may or may not know, you know, China was one of the first countries to implement special economic zones. And, and they did it in the at the time, what was a town really of Shenzhen, uh, really a fishing town, a fishing and farming town. 
and now it's become one of the largest metropolises in the world, um, all because that special economic zone essentially freed up from regulation, lowered tariffs, made taxes low, and this this um, this area has really prospered. So. Um, other countries have followed suit, and that's why we have hundreds or thousands of special economic zones everywhere, um, to the point where they're no longer um, a differentiator uh, from the next country over. You can get a special economic zone in darn near every country in the world, I, I think, including the United States. Um, so what our idea is, is, um, okay, the special economic zones are no longer sufficient, what about going a little bit further even? What if we give even more autonomy to these, uh, to, the, to the market really, to um, you know, garner f uh, foreign direct investment and grow, um, which inevitably will have spillover effects onto the local community. And so I think that's sort of the, the, the um, area that we've gone. You know, the other area is just where we can get political support. It's not, as you can imagine, uh, very common for politicians to say, sure, come take our land. We want to give up, um, you know, uh, we want to give up our sovereignty. That doesn't happen very often. In fact, um, in many ways, the only place that it has happened for sure uh, is Honduras right now. Um, we are in talks with other countries. We think there's reason to believe there will be more in the future. Um, but about the only place that something like this or something approximating this exists is actually in Honduras right now. Hmm. So Honduras is a, is a prospect. Do you have a very developed um, free trade cities? Um, not, not fully developed, I would say, uh, in development, yes. Um, so we are, um, you may or may not have heard of Honduras Prospera. Um, they're on the island of Rotan, which is um, in the northern Bay Islands of Honduras. Um, Prospera is um, a small little area that was bought by um, really a bunch of libertarian um, entrepreneurs in order to uh, build um, what I would call a free private city, what is technically in Honduras called a ZEDE, a Zone for Economic Development and Employment. Um, this ZEDE law was passed and the constitution of Honduras was actually changed a number of years ago, um, really through um, somewhat fortunate circumstances surrounding a boycott of the election, it just so happened to get enough of the Nationalist Party in so you could actually change the constitution, which seems highly unlikely to ever be changed again. Um, so we sort of have to live with what the law is now. It's a little bit messy, but can't change it. It's it's not going to get changed. So what we have now is the ZEDE law, which allows within some constraints um, that are probably too intricate to get into right now. And I would have to go back and look through uh, exactly how it all can work. But if you jump through a couple loopholes, um, property owners of a given size can essentially declare themselves to become ZEDEs. And as long as they can fulfill a couple of things like the, the guarantee of, um, you know, personal protection, um, then essentially there's no reason they cannot become ZAs. So these are increasingly popping up. There are currently three of them in Honduras. Uh, I think there's probably reason to believe there might be five or more, um, even by the end of the year. They're, they're coming pretty quick. 
Um, and, and all of them are rather um, fledgling in their development. So Honduras Prospero was really the first one. Um, there's another one um, near the town of Choloma on the mainland of uh, Honduras called Ciudad Morazon. And there's another one in the south of the country that um, you know, myself and my company were somewhat less familiar with. Um, and it seems to be uh, more or less one company that sort of declared themselves to become a ZA more out of um, you know tax reasons and regulation reasons than um, building a city to become you know a, a different model for the future. And I want to ask because you and I are uh, students of economics, the prospect of new forms of currency and money in these um, uh, um, free trade cities. Uh, do you think Bitcoin is a prospect to look at as far as like these developing cities with um, adopting new currencies? What, what, do, what do you think about that? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, we, we accept investment in cryptocurrencies, largely Bitcoin. Um, we are, there's differing views within the company about what cryptocurrency is the right one. Um, but I think, you know, certainly, um, we're rather open-minded about what the currency of these cities will be, um, you know, for, um, in terms of what you might call taxes or, or the, the fee that we would charge as the government service provider, um, uh, we'll have to make the cutoff at some point. We'll accept, you know, A, B, and C currencies. Um, my guess is those will be U.S. dollars, euros, Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum, maybe Bitcoin Cash. Um, I'm not sure exactly where, where we will make that cutoff, and it's sort of a decision that we'll figure out when we get there. Um, but yeah, we absolutely think that um, those are the future. We absolutely will have a free market in it. We're not going to, just because we accept payment in those you know three five whatever currencies doesn't mean we have any regulations necessarily within the city about what you can and can't use if someone wants to only accept bitcoin by all means go ahead and do that you, you just got to attract customers that want to pay you in bitcoin um so we're a total free market in currency we don't want to plan it um and i i do personally think that bitcoin is the future great what is your I guess, philosophical outlook for the direction or ideal destination of the development of these free uh, trade cities. Um, do you see this as being the demise of the nation states? Yeah, I don't. Um, that's a tricky question. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. Um, I think it's a little too early and it might be a little bit too um, premature to claim that it would be the downfall of any nation state necessarily. I don't even think that we purport to want to necessarily do that. Um, what we want to do is we want to provide an alternative for people that want to live in um, not under authoritarian rule, not under lockdowns, uh, that can arbitrarily be enforced, not at the you know um, whim of a forced vaccination. That can live their lives like normal people that want to live normal lives. They want to raise their kids. They want to go to church. They want to go out for on the weekend. Whatever it is that they want to do, that normal people do. We want people to do that. Um, if people want to stay in, you know, the U.S. or Canada or wherever they want to stay, that's fine. I, I we're not trying to necessarily 
make everyone in the world a libertarian. I think that's increasingly clear that we cannot do that. Uh, there are people that don't agree with us. They don't agree with us very strongly. And there will be no, even if you can have a respectful discussion with them, which is increasingly difficult, you're still not going to change anyone's mind. Um, and, and that's fine. They don't need to change their mind. If they'd like to live, you know, the way things are going now, that's fine. I just don't. So I don't know that we're trying to, to be the downfall. Uh, we're just trying to provide a place of security and regular life for people that would like it. Great response. Do you see yourself moving out of the United States? Um, in the short run, no. In the long run, yes. Um, although I'll hedge my bets on both. Um, you know, as of now, things in the U.S. are okay. There's no free private city that's far enough along where I would be comfortable moving. Um, that said, if one develops very quickly and becomes something I'm comfortable with and stable, and um, then yeah, I would absolutely move. In the long run, I do think things in the U.S. are going to get pretty messy, uh, so I think I'll be forced to move, quite frankly. Um, I don't know exactly where. It's not like there are um, you know, bunches of options for people with my type of views. Um, so we'll see. In the long run, I imagine that the United States is not going to be my home. I just don't see how uh, anything here turns around for the positive quick enough. I think we're going to have to go through some hard times before, uh, before anything gets better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I tend to agree with you. Um, it's difficult for people to want to move out of where they live. Uh, that's, that's very strenuous and, and yeah, people, some people don't want to do that. Well, I think that's, I, that's absolutely true. Uh, it, it's one of the challenges we face. It's also one of the reasons why We'd love to build a free private city in the U.S., for example. I just don't know that that's likely to happen. I, I would hope um, through increasing polarization, some state, um, you know, in particular from the left point of view, California seems to come to mind or, or New York or from the right point of view, uh, Florida comes to mind. Um, if they would be willing to really stand up and talk seriously about some sort of secession and living in different environments. Look, Florida does not have to be ruled the same way as New York City. It just doesn't. If that happens, uh, you know, then certainly we would look at opportunities to, you know, carve out a, a portion of, uh, you know, Florida or even, um, you know, any other state to, to build a free private city, which would still be within what people think of today as the United States. Um, I just don't know that it's terribly likely to happen. Uh, I, I can't, the arrogance from politicians in the U.S. seems unlikely to um, be willing to even sit at a table and discuss why this would be a potential benefit. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, I can assume, very much in favor of national divorce, separation, localization. I am. I've been totally convinced really by um, Jeff Deist. I would say I don't, I, I just increasingly think he's right that there's no point in fighting. Um, the only way that this is going to simmer down is to separate. So I, I don't, it's not that I want to see the United States broken up. I, um, 
but I just don't see another way. I, I think it just it makes more sense for Florida to be Florida, New York to be New York, Illinois to be Illinois, and even within that, Chicago to be Chicago and the rest of Illinois to be something else. I, I almost think that it's a boomer ideology that we need the states to be united. Um, what does the flag even represent anymore? It's, it's a symbol. You know, I, like, like as Michael Malice says, I love this country. Maybe not him. There's a quote that says, like, I love the country, but hate the government. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's, it's what is the country anymore? I mean, I care more about people than I do a geographical uh, designated area. Um, if people aren't happy in this relationship, then it's definitely time to, to separate. And what do you think that looks like? I don't know what that looks like. I think it, it's messy. Um, I, I would agree with your sentiment that um, I, I, it just is foreign to me why we can't get more people to realize that a divorce amongst the states is the right move forward. I just, you know, it's constant bickering from left and right. You know, the Democrats do this. The Demo- you know, Joe Biden... Uh, got these 13 people murdered in you know, the Kabul airport. Uh, the Republicans, uh, you know, want women to be forced to give, you know, raise children till they're 18, whatever the argument is. Increasingly, these they just don't see eye to eye. And yet the idea of a national divorce seems to frighten them more than anything. And I do not know. I, I honestly would am at a loss for why that is. Uh, maybe it is, um, like you said, a, a boomer type of thing. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, but I can say honestly, I've never quite understood it. I've never felt it. I, I have, I guess, um, you know, America pride to to an extent, but uh, not past the point of the fact that we can no longer get along. And if you can no longer get along, then what is the point of this in the first place? As for how a divorce would look, I, I can't say, um, you know, I've, I've heard, um, Tom Woods and, and Brian McClanahan talk about this a little bit. I think, um, it's very tricky. Um, what happens to, you know, U S federal government bases in Texas, if, if we have a Texas, uh, I don't know, but I, I have to imagine that, all of this could be figured out through if you had rational heads talking about, okay, you know, we have this of your property, you have that of our property. It makes more sense to have everything that's within, you know, the, the geographic boundaries of Texas um, and, and to sell everything else back. I think you can get to some sort of, it's not really a market since it would still be governments making this, but some sort of market response. Um, but it would be ugly. And I think that's partly what frightens people from going down this conversation is the fact that no matter how you do it, there's a lot of entangling webs and it's going to be tricky and you're just going to have to you know, work through it line by line and, and just, it's gotta be done. Yeah. That's unfortunately the answers we don't have is what does it look like to separate? So it's sort of our, our ideology, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how the market in a new free private city is going to look. That's sort of the point. It, we want to set the foundation of let people. I, I think people make pretty good decisions when they're free to make decisions. And they don't like coercion. 
otherwise i sort of just want to let people do as they may and how that looks we're going to find out definitely um that the beautiful thing of knowledge and uh specialization in trade and having inventions being discovered not by the planners but by people mm -hmm. um going back to that idea of nationalism and um having a united states rather than a uh i don't even um, to use the less term a diverse diversity of states um yeah it maybe it's it's not it's definitely not just a boomer thing but it's it's almost something we take for granted or have been indoctrinated into believing that the states need are just as a given united and necessarily so um so i think you know what maybe in the upcoming generations more uh cynical views about you know what school schooling is or the ideas may change people may be able to see not from like a libertarian perspective but from practical perspective that like fuck these people in the other state let's just separate from them and mm -hmm. like we don't need to associate with them seems to me that's one of uh one of the few and only silver linings from this whole covid lockdown fiasco is people in florida are proud to be in florida people in new york if you're proud to be in new york then you're one type of person that tells me essentially everything i need to know about your politics and the people that were in New York that have now fled to Florida are now proud to be in the free state of Florida. And I think that this is unequivocally a good thing for people to think of themselves as Floridians, New Yorkers, Texans. That's the only way that this improves over time. If you just think of yourself as an American, I mean, that's just, it's over and over again, just repeated to you. That's going to build up that national pride. Um, and I think the more and more we can, we can build up state pride and city pride and, you know, then even more local beyond that, the better. Um, but, but the, you know, getting down to the state level is, is really the first, um, the first major goal, at least becoming, you know, I mean, the states are, many of them are about the size of the states in over in Europe. I mean, it just, it doesn't make any sense that Florida couldn't be its own country. You, I mean, it's got, I don't know, 35, 40 million, 50 million people there that's about as big as, you know, many of the, the countries in Europe and they're all, um, you know, right, you know, have borders right next to each other. There's no reason there has to be just one country over this massive landmass covering mountains and two oceans and you know, major rivers and all those types of things. There's just no reason that it all has to be under one rule. Uh, a very interesting point my older brother mentioned to me was some states want to be associated with California, for example, because of the tech industry, they have such a strong, um, I guess, GDP that some of these other, you know, destitute states are like, no, 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 we need to be together because we want this economic powerhouse. Um, do you think that, that maybe we don't break along state barriers or boundaries and I don't know, maybe maybe there's even more of a disintegration within the states, possibly. It's just thinking like maybe we bypass the state secession level and somehow go into like a county level. Uh, it seems to me that um, is possible. Um, I guess what immediately comes to mind is the fact that, A, on the, on the one hand, 
it seems likely that you can garner support amongst the county to do something like this um, easier than you can across a whole state. Um, I think it's already happened in a number of places. I think there's some counties in Western Virginia that want to become part of West Virginia. I think there are some in maybe Oregon that want to become part of Idaho. So I do, I do think in that sense that it is absolutely more possible from, from a practical level. Um, on the other hand, from a practical level, um, there's a legal process for this at the state level. The states make up the federal government. This, the counties and the local governments do not make up the states. Um, those are really national, from the state perspective, those states, uh, they formulate the national government, so they are prior to the national government, therefore they could um, easily separate. Uh, certainly it's complicated. We've gone through a civil war. Civil war is a bad term for it, um, since they're not fighting over the same government. Um, so there's there's hair on it with that, but it matter-of-factly plainly says in the Constitution that the states can in fact, secede. Um, you know, they make up the federal government. The counties, that is not the same way. Um, so they're in a, it is easier to garner support, but it's not like there is a prior thought through way to disintegrate at that level. So it would necessarily have more complications, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, this, this could happen in a million different ways. Um, Great. Um, let's see. Is there anything on your mind that, that sticks out? I'm, I know I'm making this very like question oriented, <laughs> but it is a podcast and I want to keep it like a casual conversation. Sure. On, on uh, intense political philosophy and economics and such. Well, maybe you've already gotten on to, into it on your previous podcast, but I'd love to hear about what you're um, getting ready to do in terms of studying Austrian economics over in Spain. I am so excited. Uh, so I am going to study at the Universidad de Rey Juan Carlos in Madrid, Spain, under a couple professors, but specifically Professor Jesus Huerta de Soto, who's a legend in the field of economic theory of the Austrian school. And I'm actually leaving this Sunday from DC to cut down on travel time. Um, but that's that. I mean, dude, I'm I'm looking forward to that. In college, I went to Occidental College, mm -hmm. and um, there was a professor there, Professor Jurgen, who offered a course called Free Market Economics, the Austrian Perspective. And I played baseball, and going into college, I was like a libertarian. Some of the older baseball players was like, dude, you got to meet this professor. He's a libertarian. So I met him, and I was lucky enough to take a course with him, BSTA. Um, I took five courses with him in college, and he was like, he's my mentor. Um, but he helped me go to the Mises University in mm -hmm. 2018. Are you? Did you attend? That? I've never done it. No. What about the Roth, uh, the Rothbard graduate? So? I've never done it, but that is part of the um, curriculum yeah, for the is. master's degree. Will you be doing that next summer? It'll be next summer. Yeah, okay. it's like the eighth. So the the our program is ten segments long, and it's like the eighth one. So okay. If you do that next summer, I'm trying to do that one too. Okay. Then there's a decent chance that we'll be in the same yeah, one. That would yeah. be awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be so sweet. But the Mises University was great. I met two people there in particular, um, Alan Wheeler and Alex Lewis, and they they uh, they recommended they introduced me to De Soto's program in Spain, 
and they're like, dude, if you want to study Austrian economics and a master's degree, go to this one. And um, so that's been, it's been like a goal of mine to do this for the last couple of years. Um, I, I went to a Mises conference in 2019, back in November in, in Los Angeles, where they announced, I think Lou Rockwell announced, they're offering the, the master's program in Austrian economics with the Mises Institute. And I was like, damn, that's awesome. Um, I, I, I attempted to apply for the first cohort, but I was a day late because uh, I had to take the GRE and I got my test results the day after the applications were due. So mm -hmm. uh, I didn't get it, but that's all right. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited for Spain and, and to just, you know, become a just in, totally immersed, um, emerged and immersed into both Spain and Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. How long is the program? The master's is one year, and then there's a follow-up uh, PhD program that's two years long. But I don't know if the PhD program is something to do from home or like you have to be there in Spain. Mm -hmm. So. And is it a like a full-time program? So the, the Mises one is um, not really full-time necessarily. It's very it's very independent study. So I'm still working, as you know, um, and doing it on the side. I assume yours is going to be full-time or? Yeah, this one is full-time. I'm, I'm very curious about the Mises master's program. Mm -hmm. uh, is it like, what, what would that, how many hours of course load is that? Um, so it's structured and i'm only in my first class so i don't i can't really speak to anything beyond this one so right now just microeconomics um it is eight weeks long each week roughly we have um, an hour or two hour long lectures pre-recorded lectures from you know somewhere on the Mises site at some point in the past typically and then uh, five to eight readings, which probably sums up to maybe 150 pages of, of text per week. Um, and then you will write um, a discussion post on that topic, um, about 500 words and respond to at least two of your, um, two of your uh, classmates posts as well. So it's a largely, um, you know, self-learning, you watch the lectures, you read the books and you try to think about and write. Um, and just kind of think about this stuff on your own time, I would say. So the, the time constraint is basically how much you want to put into it. Um, that said, because it's a highly selective group of people, you know, your average person is not getting a master's in Austrian economics from the Mises Institute. Um, it's a lot of people that are very dedicated to this and very interested in this already have a strong background in this. Um, so the, um, the amount of time I'm putting into it is um, reasonably significant. I, I have a master's degree from Notre Dame in finance, and I can tell you confidently that the Mises Institute I'm finding um, much more difficult. And that's not to speak bad on Notre Dame at all. Um, it's just it's way more intellectually stimulating for me. Uh, the f finance is what I got my master's degree in Notre Dame. It's very much solve the calculations. Um, and I knew how to do much of that. So, um, you know, that's one thing, but it's just, you know, thinking through a praxeological argument is something that necessarily entails very critical thinking over time, um, and just very rigorous reading and, and things like that. So, um, I'm finding it fascinating, very stimulating and, 
um, harder is not the right term, but more effort required than I maybe expected in a good way, uh, like yeah. in a, genuinely in a good way. That's, that's fascinating. Um, so how are the, the readings that you're doing? Like what are, what are the main sources? Yeah, the, the main sources are the main the main texts, the really the treatises of uh, Austrian economics. So we've already delved into uh, man economy and state, human action, bureaucracy, things like that. Um, there's a few others by um, some uh, some other authors that are a little bit newer that try to make it in a little bit simpler terms. But um, we're certainly delving right into the to the BMFs um, and the, those large treatises that or the yeah. foundation. That's really cool, man. I, 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 uh, in college in undergrad, my professor was like, dude, let's read human action. It took us two years to finish. Yep. He finished a couple months or weeks before me, but, but I'm like, the, the fact that you guys are just reading those is like, dude, that is the best master's program. Yep. In the world. Yep. It will. And it's, it's super, um, I've, I bought both of those books, man, economy and state and human action a couple years ago, wanting to read them and, for one reason or another, or another did not. What's nice about this program is a, it's another, you know, kick in the rear end to do it. And also it comes with just a modicum of, of instruction of, of professor instruction. Like, why don't you read, you know, these 30 pages this week that cover this topic. And then I want you to write a post on it and reflect on it. And then we'll go to those 80 pages. And so it's, it's, um, instead of just starting at page one and reading through, which can be helpful, but, um, for me, this is the right mix of what, what, okay. You read these 30 pages, you read chapters one and two, what is, what does it mean? Uh, and so you really dig in and digest that. And then it's like, all right, now chapters 11 through 15, what does that mean? And how do they fit together? So it's just the right mix of, um, do it on your own, but also within, some structure, like just a little bit of, of structure to make sure you're pointed in the right direction. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's great. I'm loving it so far. That's so cool. Well, you should do it sometime. You could do it in a couple years. We'll see how this master's program goes, but <laughs> definitely the Rothbard graduate yep. program. Um, have you guys finished human action and man economy? No, no, it's just no, you're no, going no. through it. Yep, we're going through it. And I don't know that we will technically finish the whole book. We'll read. I mean, we're reading 200 pages a week of three to four different texts, so we're not going to finish the whole book. Yeah. Um, but I imagine throughout this course and future courses within the program, I'll get through most of it. I, I'm not sure that I will be able to say I read it, you know, front to end, front to front to back. Um, but very familiar with the text, um, certainly by the time I'm finished. That's so dope. Um, this is, this is great. Um, we can, we can keep going, uh, but I want to grab some dinner if you're available, and maybe a beer. Sure. Um, that'd be great. Anything else that you want to discuss on the podcast? No, I think that's it for me. Um, any shout outs? <laughs> no, no, no specific shout outs. Um, if you're interested in any of the, um, the tipless work that I've described, um, go to free private cities foundation, uh, free private cities.com, um, which is the website for the, for the foundation. Um, and then if you're interested in the project company, go to tipless.com. Um, and you can find my contact information there, my bio and, and read a little bit more about us. 
Um, and if you have any questions, comments, um, ideas, then certainly feel free to reach out to me. We're, we're always looking for new, uh, new projects we could potentially take on. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much.